Well, beloved, turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter... I didn't bring my bulletin up here. Uh, Alan, may I have your bulletin? Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 23. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 23. I'm going to read this just to prepare us for the sermon text, which is this morning, Psalm 61. Psalm 61 is our Psalm of the Month, this being my 61st month as your installed pastor. So Psalm 61, in just a moment, to begin with, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 23. Now the word of the Lord. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all his might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son, of his love, in whom we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that all in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, whether made peace through the blood, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. The Apostle Paul gives us a text here that I'm frankly intimidated by because I'm going to explain it to you briefly and if I had an hour I would fall short of its glory. This is a text that is packed, loaded with truth about Jesus Christ. There are three things I want you to note very briefly before we turn to Psalm 61. First, Paul says in the opening paragraph, verses 9 through 14, that all of salvation is in Christ. Anything that was necessary for us to be saved was done by Jesus. He is our righteousness. He is our resurrection. He is the revelation of the will of God. He is the atonement for our sin. 
He is the spiritual truth that we must understand. He is our patience and our joy. He is the qualifying of us for salvation. Indeed, he is the one who has moved us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. If there is anything that God has done to save us, he has done it in Christ. But secondly, in in the paragraph verses 15 through 18, the Apostle Paul adds that the completeness of salvation is found completely in Christ because he is completely God. In him is the fullness of divinity and deity. He is the express image of God, the firstborn over creation. Jesus is fully our Savior, for he is fully God. So in him is the fullness of the church. We are united to one another in him. And so then thirdly and finally he says, and so he is fully and completely our hope. He is the one to whom we must cling and we must beware as believers that we are not distracted by the religious elements that unite us to Christ, believing that they save us. It is not our religious performance, but our Christ who saves us. This rich and emphatic focus on Christ is what is at the center of our gospel and the center of our identity. So with that in mind, turn back to Psalm 61. Our Psalm of the Month is Psalm 61. And I'm going to read these verse eight, first eight verses, Psalm 61. Psalm 61, here again, the word of the Lord. To the chief musician on a stringed instrument... Psalm of David. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Salah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life, his years, as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. So I will sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. Amen and amen. On a beautiful afternoon, just before chore time, I was sitting out on a far hill underneath some apple trees, looking out over the valley that made the north end of our farm. And it was beautiful and glorious and green. And I glanced to my left, for the, you know, those who haven't been out west, that, that's to your west. So, to your left, when you're facing north, it's west. And out there on the western sky was this rising cloud, dark and thick, and I thought to myself, there is something that looks like rain. So, like a teenage boy, I sat there a little longer. And a few minutes later, I, I, I felt and heard this, this rush of a wind coming out of the west, down through the trees, blushing, 
across my skin and my hair, and I thought to myself, that, that smells like rain. That feels like rain. So I sat there a few more minutes. And sure enough, as the cloud cover filled the vast sky before me, and as the wind gathered around me, I began to feel drops of water. And it was then that my teenage consciousness kicked in, and I thought, I should leave. It's raining. I leapt up, and I ran out from underneath the apple trees to the nearest fence, which led to the pasture behind the barn, and I leapt over the fence, and I ran through the pasture, and the raindrops began to get bigger and heavier and more numerous. I came to the final gate that separated the pasture from the back of the barn, and I leapt over the gate and raced into the barn, drenched like a drowned rat. All the cows looked up from eating and thought, what is this foolish little boy? Did he not read all the signs? We all came in out of the pasture long before he did. We knew what was going on. Yes, teenage boys can be dumber than cows. But we all have an instinct to seek shelter. When storms come hovering into the skies, we instinctively seek shelter. What we experience as a physical reality in the weather of this world is no less true of us in our spiritual and emotional realities. That when storms crowd in on our hearts, we seek shelter. When sins and sorrows rise up before our eyes, we seek shelter. And Psalm 61 teaches us to seek shelter in prayer. Psalm 61 teaches us to find prayer the avenue of shelter, the way of escape from the storms of this life. And Psalm 61 gives us a reason why. It tells us why prayer is powerful and effective at delivering us safely into shelter. The reason is because Jesus is the reason you're alive. Jesus is the reason you're here. Jesus is the reason anything's here. Jesus is the reason everything's here. Because Jesus is the reason you're alive. You can find shelter in prayer. Look at the psalm with me this morning. Notice, first of all, in the subtitle, three familiar phrases to the chief musician on a stringed instrument, a psalm of David. Those who have actually sat through 60 of these sermons, 61 of these sermons, know some of these phrases. Psalm of David means that it's been written either by David or by David's prophetic partnership. David had several men, Asaph and Jonathan and a few others, who worked with him under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write many of the Psalms. Perhaps this is David's own composition. Perhaps it's one of his friend's compositions. Either way, it pertains to his life as experience and is under his royal authority being delivered to the chief musician. By this, the psalmist means the choir master. That Levite who is responsible for producing Psalm 61 during the worship service in the tabernacle or temper. In other words, this is a psalm from the king to the church. This is a psalm that belongs to the choir. That they should, with their choir master, sing it. The important lesson for us in this is that we have not chosen this psalm. This isn't necessarily what we would write or what we think we need for our lives. But the royal king and head of the church, Jesus Christ, typified here by David, has chosen this psalm. 
Jesus thinks this is the song we need. And so he hands it to us. Secondly, we learn from this that we do not sing it in our own strength, in our own wisdom. The psalm comes to the choir through the choir master, through the chief musician. We sing it in union with Christ. Its true meaning is only found when we find Jesus. Its true riches and value and treasure is only possessed by us when we possess Christ. We get it from our king, but we sing it with him too. And then in the middle, on a stringed instrument. This one, of course, becomes very awkward for our piece, because as you may have noted, we don't have one. Well, there's a convenient explanation. Namely, that the idea that the Hebrew word here means stringed instrument is one that we invented. And that if you actually look up the Hebrew word neganoth or neganoth, in all the other Old Testament passages, you'll actually find that it's being used in a situation where there is taunting or derision or mocking. So it's not actually saying that this is a song that goes to stringed instruments. It's actually saying that it's a psalm that goes to situations where you are mocked and derided and ridiculed. It is a psalm from Jesus to his church so that she knows how to pray and what to sing when her enemies seem triumphant. Does that seem like a timely psalm? Does that seem like a psalm we need today? When the church seems small and on the run and defeated... God says through his king, Jesus, here's a song for you guys to sing in the wilderness when you're on the run from your enemies. Number one, pray. When your enemies seem triumphant, when the church seems small and defeated, he says to us in those times of derision and of ridicule, pray. Notice verse one. Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. David in verse 1 begins with prayer, as he often does in Psalms. His problem is addressed first and best by prayer. He doesn't come to the conclusion, well, all I can do is pray. He comes to the conclusion, the first best thing I can do is pray. And having faced his problem, David prays, hear my cry, attend to my prayer. This is surely a lesson we need. See, compare ourselves to David for a moment. He's king of Israel. He has at his disposal an army. He could solve this problem with war. But he doesn't. He prays. David has at his disposal a palace full of riches and treasures the spoils of many kingdoms. He could solve this problem with wealth, but he doesn't. He prays. David has all around him a mighty council full of great wisdom, Ahithophel and others. Tremendous knowledge and understanding. He could solve this problem with wisdom, but he doesn't. He prays. We could now argue from the greater to the lesser. If David who has more strength, more wealth, and more wisdom than we do, chooses to pray to solve his problem, how much more we? How much more we, the poor and the weak and the powerless, should be the first to pray and should be swift to pray and to see prayer as the solution to our problem? 
Now notice in verse 2 the particular problem. David says, I am praying and crying out from the ends of the earth. This metaphor, this poetic image, refers to the fact that Jerusalem is seen as the center of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is seen as the center of the universe. When David says, I am praying from the ends of the earth, what he means is, I am in exile. I have been driven out of Jerusalem. I have been driven away from the Ark of the Covenant, away from the presence of of God in the tabernacle. He's referring to that experience with Absalom. Where Absalom has gathered loyalty and has raised up a rebellion to have David thrown off the kingdom, off the throne. In which he, as a son, seeks the death of his father in order to rule and reign in his place. And David, rather than fighting his own son, rather than having civil war in the streets of Jerusalem, flees to the ends of the earth. He accepts exile. And there his heart is overwhelmed. This is quite understandable, right? I mean, your own son's trying to kill you. And he's trying to get you off the throne. Your own people have once again sided with your enemy against you. This is a most unloved father. This is a most unloved king. What is more, he's rather unlovely himself. Remember, he's not been altogether perfect as a father or a king. He's neglected justice. He's neglected mercy. Being both a great sinner and a victim of great sin, David is utterly overwhelmed in heart and looking for a rock that is higher than he is. He is hoping by means of his prayer he can somehow go from the ends of the earth to the highest elevation that his enemies, both sins and sorrows, cannot reach him. What David is imagining poetically here is that this psalm, this prayer, somehow has the power to move him from the ends of the earth to the very heights of safety. A stronghold in citadel. How could this be? What is David expecting here? Well, in family worship this last week, one of my very astute little children said, Rock, Jesus, we've got this figured out. And there is an element of truth to that. That what David has in mind here is that there is a rock in this world which cannot be shaken. David's kingdom has been shaken. David is fleeing for his life. David is about to lose his throne and his crown. And what is David praying? Lead me to the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Lead me to the king who cannot be dethroned. David is grasping that even as his kingdom is rocked, there is another kingdom that is not. That is itself a rock that cannot be, that cannot be disturbed. Beloved, this is what we need to learn in prayer. This is why we pray. This is why we pray Psalm 61. This is why we, when we find ourselves at the ends of the earth, as remote from God as we can imagine, when we find our hearts desperately overwhelmed, unable to cope with the trauma and the tragedies of our life, when we find ourselves shaken and our kingdoms collapsing around us, prayer, specifically Psalm 61 prayer, teaches us our kingdoms are not meant to last. 
Our life's work is not about us. And that's what David is awakening to. Wait, Absalom could kill me. I could die. Wait, Absalom could take the kingdom. I could be dethroned. You know what? That's okay. This kingdom wasn't meant to be permanent. There's a rock higher than me. There's another kingdom to which I am serving and aiming. It's not about me. How much we need this prayer. Yes? That when we look at the almighty mess that is our marriages, when we look at the almighty mess that is our families, when we look at the almighty mess that is our our nation, our community, and we think, I am overwhelmed. And God feels very far away. Psalm 61 teaches us to pray. But it's not about you. Psalm 61 teaches us to pray. It's not your life. It's His life given to you. It's not your church. It's His church. It's not your kingdom. It's His kingdom. There's a rock higher than you. There's a kingdom bigger than you. There's something more important happening in your life than you. But then David, praying his way from his problem to this liberating reality that his life isn't about him, recalls the past. In verses 4 through 3 through 5, David recalls how God has treated him in times past. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. David here is likely reflecting on his experience with Saul. That when David had been anointed to be king and head of the church after Saul, Saul was possessed by an evil spirit and sought to destroy this rival, this successor. Saul was so jealous for his crown, so jealous for his kingdom, so jealous for his own family succession. He wanted Jonathan on the throne. Richly and beautifully, Jonathan actually wasn't jealous for his own kingdom. He was jealous for David's. But Saul, so jealous for his own power and his own glory, sought to destroy David, to murder him. And David said, but he couldn't do it. You were a shelter to me. You were a strong tower. Now remember, when David sings, very beautifully and poetically, Oh, I remember those days when Saul was chasing me and you were a shelter and a strong tower for me. What David's referring to is either hiding in the wilderness in the cave of Adullam and living off of like rocks out in the wilderness, or he's referring to hiding with the Philistines, you know, at Gath, you know, the city where Goliath comes from, not exactly David's best friends. David is referring to that time in life that for him was not pleasant, was not prosperous, And he's saying, in those days, when I lived in the wilderness, when I lived with the enemies of God in the Philistines, you were to me a shelter. You were to me a strong tower. Because David can remember that tremendous moment when he was so weak, so feeble, so exposed to harm, and yet so immortal. He can pray in verse 4, I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. David can look back at the Saul experience and think, I've been here before. He looks at Absalom running him out of Jerusalem and he thinks, I've done this before. He's sleeping in the wilderness on the run from his son Absalom. And he's like, I've slept in the wilderness on the run before. 
You were a, sh- a shelter to me then. You were a strong tower to me then. You'll be a tabernacle to me now. This is an incredibly ironic choice of words. Given that when David flees Jerusalem from Absalom, they bring up the Ark of the Covenant and David meets them at the gate and says, no, 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 go put the Ark back in the tabernacle. The tabernacle doesn't go with him. The Ark doesn't go with him. He remembers the story of old with Hophni and Phinehas. Bringing the magic box to battle is not a good idea. Treating God as a plaything to be dragged around at my leisure is not what this religion is about. David realizes, I don't drag God with me. I submit to the will and providence of God. I go where God wants me to go. And I do what God wants me to do. And if he wants me to come back and worship him here in the tabernacle, I will. But until then, I'll wait for him. David is once again departing from Jerusalem, departing from the tabernacle, saying, but my God will go with me. He can hear me at the far ends of the earth. He will tabernacle over me even in the wilderness. I will trust in the shelter of his wings. This incredible metaphor that is picked up both before and after this psalm. David's great-grandmother Ruth, in the middle of the night, lays down at the feet of his great-grandfather and says, Cover me with the shelter of your wings. David's great-great-great, I have no idea how many greats it is. Uh, In Matthew, it's 14, 14, and 14, right? Greats. His son, grandson, Jesus, will likewise say to Jerusalem, I have longed to cover you with wings like a mother hen covers its chicks. Of course, here in Psalm 61, David says, I have known the sheltering presence of God wherever I have gone. God's safety is not stuck in Jerusalem. God's power to save is not stuck in the Ark of the Covenant. God's power to save is everywhere present. For this reason, David says, Selah. Stop and think about this for a minute. If you're living in this Hebrew Old Testament world, these things that David is bringing to mind in this psalm as the Levitical choir there in the temple under the reign of Solomon is singing Psalm 61. You're looking at the gold and you're looking at the pillars and you're looking at this beautiful building and this wonderful sound coming from the Levites. And you're overwhelmed with all the glory. And David's Psalm 61 is streaming through the air into your Hebrew ears saying, and this stuff doesn't matter. He doesn't need it. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than the ark. And if he were to tear this place down and chase you into the wilderness, he would go with you. And he would keep company with you. This is why we pray. We pray because we have something in life we need to get to that's higher than us, bigger than us, more important than us. Prayer is what gets us out of self and into Christ. But what is more, verses 3 and 4, prayer is what gets us to realize that Christ is ever with us. Prayer is what awakens us to the reality that He has chosen to tabernacle among us. That it's not simply a place that we go to on Sunday morning. It is us, his people, gathering together in which he dwells. We are his tent and tabernacle, and he shelters us. 
David recalls then that not only has prayer moved him out of himself and his selfish vision of his own kingship, prayer has moved him out of Jerusalem and the tabernacle and the selfish conviction that this religious experience is the sum total of God and into the riches of Christ who is God with us. So then thirdly, David discovers there's a king greater than he is, verses 5 through 7. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear. By this, David refers to his coronation. You have heard my vows, my promises to be a godly king, my promises to walk before you and to be holy, to be a man after your own heart. Those promises he made in the days of Saul when his life was threatened. The promises he made before the elders of Israel and Judah when he was anointed and crowned as king before them in Hebron. But what is more, he says in verse 5, you've given me the heritage of those who fear you. That is to say, you've given me all the land of Israel. You've made me king and head of your people. I am the covenant monarch. But then he begins to pray. And something changes. You will prolong the king's life. His years as many generations. He will abide before God forever. O prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. David cannot possibly be praying this for himself. Now the first line seems to make sense. You will prolong the king's life. Or please prolong the king's life. This seems a line he could appropriate to himself. Where David is running from Absalom and saying, Hey, don't let Absalom win. Hey, don't let my kingdom fall. Don't let me die at the hands of my own son in the wilderness. But David hasn't prayed that way once yet. That would be a strange and new idea. David thus far has prayed, Lord, I'm on the run from Absalom. I might lose my life and I might lose my kingdom. In the meantime, help me to focus on your kingdom. Help me to see the rock that is higher than I. The the purpose for which I was made. That kingdom of God. He also prays, help me to know that you're always with me. Help me to know your ever-present presence. Your spirit dwells with me. Now, thirdly, it would seem odd that he has suddenly recovered a selfish desire to survive. He hasn't. He is praying here about a king that is not him. We see this in the subsequent lines. You will prolong the king's life. You will prolong it for generations. You will prolong it to be before God, that is literally in the face of God, in heaven, forever. David is here praying for a descendant who will reign not in Jerusalem, but in heavenly Zion. He is praying here for an offspring who will reign for many generations, not a few years. The beautiful truth behind Psalm 61 is that when Absalom rebelled against David, David realized he wasn't going to reign forever. And that's a good thing. David realized his kingdom wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. It was about the coming king. The descendant of David who would reign for years with many generations. It was about the descendant of David who would abide before God forever. This language here is the language Paul uses in his epistles. That Jesus Christ rules and reigns seated on the throne in glory at the right hand of God. 
before him forever. This is the language that we need to learn to pray. Then we need to seek shelter in this prayer that moves us. Notice that Psalm 61 doesn't defeat Absalom's army. David still has to fight. Notice that Psalm 61 doesn't actually feed David or water him. He still has to depend on the kindness of Barzillai the Gileadite. Notice that David's problems don't go away just because he prays this psalm. What goes away is David's selfish ambition. What goes away is David's preoccupation with his own interests. What comes to David in prayer, ultimately, and most importantly, isn't salvation from Absalom. But it's the Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom, Paul says in Colossians, is all salvation and all deity. Why is it so important that David learns to pray in such a way that all problems lead him prayerfully to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Because there is no other Savior but Him. Because there is no other hope but Him. My hope is not in my understanding of justification nor my right use of the Lord's Supper. My hope is in Christ, of whom I know because of the Supper and the doctrine of justification. I do not need to confuse means with ends. Prayer strips us of our piety, our power. Prayer brings us naked and desperate before God in saying, I need Jesus. He is the one for whom I am living, the one to whom I owe all praise. Friends, have you prayed like this? I mean, have you really prayed a Psalm 61 prayer? Where you embrace a sense of self and of the world in which you would dare to pray as King David does, not my kingdom, your kingdom come. You see, in this way, David is not only praying with hope in the coming Christ, David is actually praying like the coming Christ. Because you see, one of the most incredible moments visually in the story about Absalom is when David is fleeing Jerusalem, he is barefoot and bareheaded. No robes, no crown, nothing that resembles royalty. David has willingly stripped all signs of his kingship. And as a broken, heartbroken father, as a desperate, fleeing monarch, he makes his way up the Mount of Olives and weeps. Praying Psalm 61. An exact replica of Jesus. Who on the night in which he will be betrayed. Will make his way out of Jerusalem. Up the Mount of Olives. Weeping as he goes. Praying. Not my will. But your will be done. Psalm 61 trains us. To pray. Not my kingdom, your kingdom. Not my will, your will. Psalm 61 is from the king 
David, Jesus, to the choir, the church. Follow my lead. Follow my example. Follow my psalm. Here, let me teach your little heart to let go of all those little kingdoms that are deep within and find a better kingdom. A rock that is higher than you. A tabernacle that cannot be removed or lost. A king who cannot be overthrown. And it's when we've prayed our way into that reality, when we've prayed our way into the reality of the new heavens and the new earth and the riches of Christ, that verse 8 suddenly makes sense. So I will sing praise to your name forever. David, wondering if he'll be dead in the morning, says, so I'm going to sing your praises tonight. Because tomorrow morning, if I die, I'll still be singing your praises. That won't change. You've heard the great line, right? What should we do if we thought Jesus was coming back next, you know, in 10 minutes? Well, we could go and sing Psalm 61, because uh, that's what's next in the order of worship. But also, because that's what we would do if he showed up. We would sing his praises. We would sing his praises forever. David says, secondly, I may daily perform my vows. David's great desire in surviving the episode with Absalom is not his own kingdom, not his own glory, but so that he might have daily opportunity to lead the saints in worship. To have daily opportunity to be at the front of the people of God and praising God. This is David's vision of his kingship. Why am I here in this office of king? To lead in worship. To fulfill the vows that I have sworn as king to make people praise and glorify God. This is what prayer does to us. It keeps us safe. It is a shelter and a strong tower around us by moving us out of the selfishness that will destroy us and into the Savior who will deliver us. He is the reason we're alive. He is the reason we have life, that we should glorify and enjoy Him. To use the language of our sermon series from the Egyptian Hillels, Psalm 61 teaches us to go from praying, Help, Lord, my kingdom is crumbling, to praying, Hallelujah, your kingdom is coming. This is what Psalm 61 teaches us to do. Lord, take my kingdom. Lord, take my crown. But give me your kingdom. Have you done this? Have you prayed this way? This is the only way to pray. Lord, take my kingdom. But may your kingdom come. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. We give you thanks for this beautiful psalm. We give you thanks for our beautiful Savior. For all the riches of His love. The joy of His grace. The abundance of His salvation. Father, forgive us. That we so often believe You are stingy. And we miss the generosity and greatness of Your love and grace. Oh God, forgive us that we are so little in prayer, believing in our own strength 
in our own wisdom, believing in our own welfare. But Father, this day forgive us. And let our kingdoms fall that your kingdom would come. We pray, Father, that Jesus would subdue us to himself and rule over us and reign in us. And that he would conquer us, his and our enemies. We pray that his kingdom would be advanced and that we and others would be added into it. We pray for the kingdom of Satan to fall, to be utterly destroyed within us and about us. And we pray for the kingdom of glory to hasten. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long for your kingdom. This we pray in his precious name. Amen. Well, that is Psalm 61.